the movies. This is Mike Meenan with Cough Switch. It's movie awards season, and I am always reminded of the radio and TV shows featuring Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, movie critics for competing Chicago newspapers, who appeared together to talk about the movies. The Siskel and Ebert programs became wildly popular with moviegoers impatient to get their take on a film before deciding whether to go see it or not. Sadly, neither Siskel nor Ebert are still with us, though the website RogerEbert.com, launched after the latter's death in 2013, still rates movies to this day. About 40 years ago, when I had a radio talk show in Palm Springs, California, both Siskel and Ebert in town for a convention were my guests, and here's how that went. First thing I've got to do is differentiate. Everybody wants to know which is which. It's not going to help you much um, until you see the next television program, but uh, Roger is the one who wears the glasses, and Gene is the other guy. (laughs) <laughs> All right. I always thought it was the other way, Mike. Gene was the guy without the glasses, and Roger was the other guy. Well, I always that... thought it was Gene was the guy without the glasses and the hair. <laughs> that could be it. Gene Siskel, that's the other guy, co-host of At the Movies, the movie review program nationally syndicated by the Tribune Entertainment Company, became the film critic for the Chicago Tribune eight months after joining the newspaper as a reporter in 1969. His reviews and columns appear in over 100 daily newspapers around the country. Before he and Chicago Sun-Times film critic Roger Ebert began hosting at the movies in the autumn of 1982, you will recall they were co-hosts of uh, Sneak Previews, the highest-rated weekly half-hour program in the history of the public broadcasting system. Siskel is also the film critic for WBBM-TV, the CBS affiliate in uh, Chicago. So when you're vacationing in... uh you know, Chicago, and then want to get some taste of that lousy weather, you know, you can watch Channel 2 News and you'll see. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know what Charles Russell, I've always said this, said about Chicago. He said, and I read this, I was up at his museum up in um, Great Falls, Montana, and he, he wrote letters in addition to painting and doing sculptures and things, and he said, if I had a winter home in hell and a summer home in Chicago, I think I'd spend my summers in my winter home. (laughs) Charles Russell. I don't think I've ever heard of him. No, I don't think I would want to have a long dinner with him. No, I don't think so. There's not much chance of that, I'm afraid. (laughs) Roger Ebert is the only film critic ever to win the Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism. The award came in 1975 for his work as film critic for the Sun-Times. He's been the film critic for the newspaper since 1967. His reviews and interviews are nationally syndicated by the News American Syndicate. He's also a critic for WLS-TV, the ABC station in Chicago. In 1984, his first book, A Kiss is Still a Kiss, was published. It is a chronicle of 17 years on the movie beat. I won't read all of uh, the rest of this material. Well, how about when I was editor of the high school paper? Oh, yeah. I know. Well, yeah, that's, that on, that's on page four. Oh, okay. and, uh, I, I once pitched a no-hitter in softball when I was eight. <laughs> that's and that's on, tough because it's slow pitch. I won the inch. Legion Citizenship Award. Okay, okay. <laughs> all right. They do, this on, they do this on television all the time. Have you guys ever played softball with uh, against uh, Jeffrey Lyons and what what is the other guy's name you see what I don't even the remember their name. name I don't remember I what remember. show are they on I don't I've even forgotten what the name of that yeah, is. everyone does his mother forgets 
Well, uh, we played in the celebrity softball game once, but of course they didn't qualify. Three two o t a l k three two o talk is the number to call. <laughs> Um, yeah. Let, first, just before we get into talking about movies, uh, the material here really didn't tell me how the idea of the original at the movies program uh, came Boy, about. There's a lot of lore about that. Actually, about 10 or 11 years ago, uh, there was some talk about doing a weekly review of the arts. And one week it would be movies, the next week music, the next week theater, and so forth. Originally on radio. And this idea kicked around Chicago for a while, and finally the PBS station in Chicago decided to try it out, first of all, once a month, just with the movies, and that was our first incarnation of this format. The other three arts that were going to be considered never made it onto the air, and our show eventually uh, became bi-weekly or bi-monthly and then finally weekly. So, but you're, you always concentrated on movies, and how did the idea of uh, now, the, all the lore that I read tells me that uh, you you all didn't seem too thrilled about doing. <laughs> well, in the beginning, done. you know, you got to realize, and still even to this day, Roger and I are uh, newspaper men. If you asked us what we really did, we're newspaper men and we're movie critics. Uh, and the TV thing has always been something extra in mm -hmm. our minds. And so, in the beginning, uh, now this is going back to probably about seven eight years. Um, we were in a newspaper town, the most hotly competitive, news, competitive newspaper town in America. Uh, Chicago then had four newspapers. Now we have two. It's still intensely competitive mm -hmm. with both papers going after every possible reader. And not, you know, there isn't like an upscale and a downscale. Everyone wants everybody. Mm -hmm. And so it's very intensely competitive, even to the point that the movie critics are competitive with each other, and the television, and the garden column, and the home, you know, they're all mm -hmm. fighting each other. So the idea that suddenly now your arch enemy, the one person in the whole planet <laughs> who you, you know, you wouldn't feel too bad, you know, if something happened to them. Oh, uh, you know, not now, no, kid, not, not so, now. Not something <laughs> terrible, I hope. No, you something know, like sorry. laryngitis or, you know, okay. uh, finger cramps. Symbi symbiotic relationship here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, the one person that they had to pick, you're going to have to go into a room now and sit down and talk, and it's going to be, you know, filmed and distributed to lots of people. It was something that, you know, didn't really delight us, but we went ahead for our various reasons, and... Uh, we are the betters for it. There's no question about it. In fact, I think that the only little, well, not the only positive thing, but one of the positive things, if there's a lesson out of the success of this show, is that it pays to talk with your competitor mm -hmm. rather than avoid them. Well, how do you avoid uh, disclosing? Uh, you know, you all are still writing your own columns. That's a and how do you avoid disclosing, you know, what you're about to say in your own column and yet having to do this show together? Uh, that's a good question because we have had situations uh, where competitive information has been involved and our staff, the people who produce at the movies, are sworn to secrecy. For example, if they know that Gene is leaving town on Tuesday to go to New York and interview Greta Garbo or somebody, they will not tell me, oh, by the way, Gene won't be around on Tuesday because he's going to be in New York. They, in fact, they won't tell me he's going out of town at all. I have to find that out for myself if I indeed ever do find it out. Telephone calls are screened. We never find out uh, each other's messages if somebody calls in because that might be a valuable piece of information. As far as the reviews are concerned, sometimes we have already written our reviews before mm -hmm. we actually tape the show. Uh -huh. But in the case of Gene, his review may appear in the Tribune, but I will not go out of my way to read it because I think the 
the show is probably more spontaneous if I'm sitting there listening to what he has to say and then responding to it without a whole lot of premeditation. When we talk to each other on the air, it is unrehearsed and unscripted and ad-lib, and uh, it's better, I think, that way than if I were to sit there trying to analyze what I think he's going to say and what I think I should say in return. Believe it or not, it actually is easier for people to do it that way. I mean, uh, the average person, if they got into, I think can relate to this, if, if you were asked to talk to your neighbor about, you know, what's going on on your block, and you had to have it scripted, or you could just talk off the cuff about a subject that you know a lot about, um, there's no question you'd do a better job if you just talked. And we can prove that we, we like it this way because frequently, if you watch the show, you'll see that we're not exactly sure who's supposed to go next sometimes. <laughs> and when we have to lead to one of the commercials or something like that, that's because we get wrapped up in, we're just seated about 18 inches away from each other, we get totally wrapped up in our discussion of the movies, just like people coming out of the theater, and we go at it, and then we know roughly what time to stop talking and turn and go on to the commercial and back to the next movie. All right. Well, let's see what Magda has for us on uh, line one, and we're going to get our headphones on, and uh, Magda should be with us. Good evening. Good evening, Mike. You're a very brave man. I thought I'd inject a bit of humor, and please don't blame Magda Gabor or the other Magda who has a restaurant. I'm not either one of them. But I, I'm probably going to break up this lovely companionship of Siskel and Iber. The last time I spoke with Mr. Iber, I said, I don't... Uh, this is apropos to Mike saying, which is which. And Monsieur Iber said, I'm the good-looking one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't remember saying that, but I'm sure I'm being quoted accurately. You are good-looking, and I love your hairdo, and I also like Monsieur... <laughs> Well, because he is very aesthetic looking. <laughs> so tomorrow, <laughs> that's right. I uh, isn't that nice. You you've seen the inside of those sweater vests? They're really hair hair sweater vests, right? They scratch. When was the last time we spoke, Magda? Uh, I think you were here. I don't know how long ago on another station, and I called, and I perhaps you were in the. Have they ever been here? Never been to Palm Springs before. Well, how in heaven's name did I speak with you? Might have been Los Angeles. Could be, it could be. Well, based on your idea that he's good-looking, it could have been a seance. It, it may have been, since I'm a Transylvanian. There's no question about it. <laughs> <laughs> to your your criticism, in because I very seldom get to the movies, I, I would like to ask one question about regarding Amadeus in particular. Don't you think? Hello. Yes. It was kind of dragged out toward the end. It was like, what's her name, crossing the ice thing, slows. Right. He's coming in a carriage, and he's dying, and back and forth flashes. Don't you think that should have been cut slightly? That was exactly uh, my only criticism of what otherwise I think is a terrific film. Right. I thought that it was, at the end, Yes. Uh, the point was made, we knew the direction the film was going in, and that would be... I don't know how many minutes I would have uh, removed, but uh, it wouldn't have been many, but I, I had the exact same feeling that you're talking about. Getting off the carriage, and it took her forever to, to enter her home, which well, would have immediately in front of the house. Those are my two crazy Dobermans. I'll let you go, gentlemen. Thank you, and I'm I appreciate I'm not going to you at home until you tie them up either, Mike. <laughs> All right, thank you. They're Transylvanian dogs, too. You don't want to mess with them. Uh, Amadeus. I like course, the Doberman gang. I'm more than. Uh, I'll be happy to go over to Mark. That was a I like good the 101 movie. Dalmatians, too. 
Yeah, well, now, the, the Doberman gang could eat the Dalmatians. Was Did you both agree on Amadeus that, that was, uh, Roger, that was your number my one? My choice is the best film of the year, and I was not bothered by the ending, although I know what she's talking about in terms of movies. A movie that came out in November called Falling in Love Again with Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep had an ending that, for me at least, was unbearably delayed in terms of will they get together again, will they say, say or exchange the crucial piece of information that will allow them to know that romance is once again possible will they both be on the same train will their eyes meet you know will i be able to resist leaving the theater and screaming at the top of my lungs you must have uh, found it to be a very long movie because you called it falling in love again and actually the title was falling in love so it must have played like two films right well i had the feeling that that should have there was a point <laughs> be a there, good sequel could not it <laughs> there was a point there where they could have cut i mean they didn't need all that stuff on the subway yeah the point when they could have cut would have been right yeah. after the studio you know name goes on the yeah. screen right before the titles <laughs> an excellent point to cut i liked it a lot more than roger did do you ever have the experience either of you of uh i went to see a movie for you a few years ago called uh, ago called a bridge too far you yeah. remember that one with kirk Dirk Bogard and all those folks. Somebody, was a Time magazine said a movie too long? Yes, was a there bridge a too far. That was my reaction. A bridge too far is an hour too long. Then it was on the movie channel. It was on the cable at home, and I watched uh -huh. it at home. And I really enjoyed it at home, but for some reason when I saw it in the theater, it, I had the impression it was too long. Have you ever... Well, there's one thing that's one thing that's true. First of all, you weren't paying any money. Uh, <laughs> second, you hadn't made a commitment to go out at night, and therefore you have a you know everyone has a limited number of times they're going to go out each week, and so you really make a much bigger investment of time and energy uh, when you're going out as opposed to staying at home. So your standards there's, are lessened. In addition, in addition, mm -hmm. what normally comes across. By the way, I don't think this film would be any good small screen, a miniature screen, but I'll, I'm just trying to explain the phenomenon of why it seems better often. Uh, what normally comes out of the box, the television set, is so mediocre. Mm -hmm. And the caliber of actors that appear on television frequently leave something to be desired, certainly in a lot of these sitcoms. So that a film that has a little bit of an intelligence in terms of direction and some cast in it and that had a big cast, uh, will somehow seem better. There'll be a higher energy level in a movie that plays on TV than in a made-for-TV anything. Yeah, I think With a possible exception of our show. All right. Let's take another call. We have uh, get your headphones on there, and we'll see what Sherry has for us on line one. I wonder if this is any Sherry that I know. Yes, Mike, it is. Okay. Hi, Mike. Uh I'm wondering if you can explain to me, or our two guests can explain to me, the ending of Sally Field's latest movie, Places in the Heart. That ending bothered me. I can give you my interpretation. Okay. Uh, it's a fantasy. I'll give you the correct one after okay. Roger's done. Fine. <laughs> it's a fantasy. Uh, now, the question is, do we want to say on the radio how the movie ended? And I think since it's been out for four months, it's safe. It's safe. Yeah. To say that all the characters in the movie, including people who have actually... Uh, been on opposite sides, and, and including one person who murdered another person, and uh, uh, Ku Klux Klansmen and their victims and so forth, are all together in church together at the same service, passing the communion plate and taking communion together. And I think that it's Robert Benton, the director's idea of how this town's life would be changed if the, uh, the Judeo-Christian ideals of that church were to leave 
through the church doors and be applicable to people's lives outside, which, of course, the movie has told us is not the case. Uh, it's, a, it's a complete fantasy uh, scene, however, and I think that a, a surprising number of people who saw the movie were trying to make it make some kind of literal sense. I wonder whether we've become so literal uh, in our movie going that we have lost the touch or the instinct uh, for realizing when the director is, uh, is allowing himself to imagine something like this. I see. I thought maybe they were supposed to be in heaven or something like that, afterlife. Well, it, it, you can take it technically, and yes, I mean, it is an afterlife, but I'll tell you one of the notions that I had. I, I, I like that uh, moment very much in the film. I, I liked it for two reasons. One, because of what I think it means, which I can for me at least I can get to, and a lot of that has to do with exactly what Roger said. And then the second thing, and this also mirrors what you were just saying, I like the step. We have movies that are, are, I like taking a risk. If you think about it, he could have had a lot of people, as apparently he has, because I've gotten a lot of calls on it. So here's a director, he's made a big movie, it's a commercial film, and he's taking the step of having everyone walk out scratching their head. And I thought, good for him. Let's push... Uh, let's push the American cinema a little bit. We have so many people that are trying to be so literal with their films. You know, uh, all these horny teenager movies that we get. Let's try and get uh, something that's a little bit more adult. And I really appreciated the attempt. And as for what it meant, I'll give you one sort of religious notion that I have. I've always felt that um, if you think of the dead, you render them alive. Or conversely, if you forget them, they are truly dead. I'm thinking, obviously, of relatives and people close to you and how you honor them. And every religion has this way of honoring the dead and memorializing them. And some people think that's kind of silly and old-fashioned. And, I, and I've come to the notion that it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do, uh, to think of the dead, because for that moment, uh, they are alive. And I think that what he is doing is we have movie characters that disappear in films so often, and they're gone. And here they're brought back with a very kind thought. I thought it was a very kindly move and a very warm move. And I think uh, it also says, given the title of the film, Places in the Heart, that the heart has a lot of places and a lot of openings uh, that um, we can fill. There, there isn't, there's just an awful lot of room there. I thought it was a very beautiful moment in movies. I'll always treasure it. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Sherry. That's Sherry Inglis, and uh, she stands in this very spot uh, uh, every morning here on KPSI with uh, Ed Kivy, and she's going to be with you tomorrow. We're going to take a break and be right back with Siskel and Ebert at the radio station. We're back on the Mike Side program. I'm Mike Meenan. We have Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert with us. They are here live, and uh, if you're wondering what they're doing in Palm Springs, they are here to address the California Broadcasters Association at their dinner meeting tonight. Uh, our phone number, if you want to call in, is 320-8255 or 320-TALK. And uh, on the line with us right now is Judy. Good afternoon. Hello. How are you tonight? Pretty good. Okay. What's on your mind? I just wanted to call and, t and tell um, Gene and Roger, first of all, how much I enjoy them. Thank you. You're welcome. And I was curious, it seems like you two both enjoy each other a lot, and I was wondering if you ever got a chance to go to the theater or the movies together, and how often you went during... 
we get the chance. Uh, I don't think we've ever been to the theater together. We go to the movies together three or four times a week in the sense that we are in the same auditorium uh, at the same time. We usually don't sit next to each other, though, or share the same box of popcorn. Mm -hmm. It's more of a job than, uh, than it is a social occasion. Mm -hmm. Do you enjoy going to, I mean, I hate to say this, but I, I assume you enjoy going to the movies, but uh, what do you do in your free time? Do you go to the grocery I'll store? You, or something? Uh, I've been in Palm Springs since Thursday. Morning. Friday night, I went out to the Palm and Pines, or Palm to Pines, Palms to Pines, and saw Pinocchio. Oh. And last night, uh, I drove into Los Angeles to see Songwriter, the Christopherson Willie Nelson picture that I that is only playing in one theater uh, in the country right now, and that's in Los Angeles. So that it's kind of a busman's holiday. I've seen two pictures since I've been here. Uh, this afternoon, I was uh, screening um, a tape of. Um the Outsiders by Francis Coppola uh, in my hotel room. And I've been watching movies on the uh, television as well. And um, I think the answer to why Roger and I would see movies when we don't go and see movies yeah. is because, uh, think about it, it's one of the all-time great jobs. Uh, it's really not painful, and it's a pleasure, and it changes so much. I don't know if we were television critics whether we would uh, see a lot of television uh, off the job. But um, the movies can be really rich, and um, I would see Pinocchio anytime. In fact, I can't wait uh, to see it uh, with my little daughter. I'll tell you, though, Gene, one thing that's going to disappoint you when you do go to see it again, it's fallen prey to this tendency that they have in re-releasing old movies. They release it in a wider format. Uh -oh. You know, the movie was made in 1940 when it was at more or less square format. Uh, mm -hmm. 1.3 feet wide for every feet tall, a uh -oh. foot tall. Is everybody short and, and so, Well, what they do, in order to make the movie wider in appearance, of course, they have to cut something off the top and bottom. Oh, no. There's a scene, for example, where the old wood carver is walking along, followed by his kitten, and you cannot see the kitten's little feet. Uh, it's cut off kind of at the jawline, and the same thing happens to Monstro the Whale, whose mouth is off screen on the bottom in one case. Now, why... Disney couldn't have released the film in the format in which it was made is incredible to me, particularly since every single frame of that movie was drawn in a particular shape and with a certain set of proportions which are now uh, altered and changed by this mindless decision to make it look like a widescreen movie, as if anyone in the world would walk out of a theater saying, gee, it isn't widescreen, I don't want to see it. That's All right. terrible. Yeah. Judy, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Okay, and Judy lines, Judy's line, excuse me, is open at 320-8255, 320-TALK. Our guests are Siskel and Ebert, and as I said before, they will be addressing the California Broadcasters Association Convention. Don't delay if you want to call in, because they will be gone by the time you think of your first question. Uh, they uh, have a lot of things to do tonight. And I guess everybody asks you this question, and I almost am almost ashamed to ask it, but I'll just get it out of the way in case anybody's interested. You guys have been together for a long time, and you probably, there are certain areas that you tend to, uh, you, you've reviewed so many movies, there are certain areas that you tend to agree and disagree in. What types of things, do, do you have a tendency to like one thing, Roger, that Gene doesn't like, and vice versa? I don't think so. I think that we have the, the ability to surprise each other from time to time. Uh, mm -hmm. Gene will dislike a movie that I could have bet you money he would have liked, or vice versa. I think sometimes I surprise him. Mm -hmm. And I've read lots of articles trying to interpret 
which is which, you know, like Gene is the intellectual and Roger is the man <laughs> of the people. And then the next article, Roger is more scholarly in his approach, Gene is the populist. Uh, nobody seems to be able to pigeonhole us, and I think that's because basically uh, we don't, I uh, speak only for myself, but Gene might agree, we don't have an ideological uh, position that we take into the movie theater. Each movie starts fresh, and we judge each one individually. Gene? Yes, and, you know, that's really, um, there's a, a tremendous uh, impetus to, to have that kind of uh, position of not being able to be predicted, to be unpredictable, because, think about it for just a second, if I didn't like, uh, now, if I didn't like a certain category of films, and there is one that I have a trouble with, but I think it's the film's fault, not mine, only a critic would say something like that, I suppose, <laughs> uh, is uh, the costume drama. I, I, when I'm going to see one, um, I'm not uh, all that optimistic because frequently I see them try to put modern dialogue in dated clothes or just uh, not have, you know, or it's over art directed and underscripted, things like that. Uh, there isn't a suspension of, of uh, disbelief. Um, that's why I liked uh, Roman Polanski's Macbeth because it was a, it was a dirty Macbeth. And I, I liked that he at least tried something fresh with uh, doing it sort of 11th century or whatever. Yeah. But but still, if somebody said, you know, he doesn't like costume dramas, well, now I, as a critic, should be sitting there waiting to show one that I liked. Because why? That validates my um, point about all the other films. You like Amadeus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so in other words, when I, you, you should never get trapped uh, in a category that you can't Do you remember have. Jack Warner's great line, don't send me any more pictures where they write with feathers? <laughs> <laughs> we have Sarah on line one. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, the new Diane Keaton movie has not opened up here in the desert yet, but I'd like to hear your opinions on Mrs. Soffel. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. It hasn't opened in Chicago either. Okay. Does it We're have gonna... to open in Chicago? No, we see films. Uh, we get them uh, shipped in from uh, New York or L.A. Uh, we That film I don't think is going to be breaking wide nationally until the end of January, and that's when we'll review it. We sort of tr try and um, book our show in terms of the movies in between New York and L.A. openings and the rest of the country. We sort of play around with that to try and make the reviews accessible to people as the films are. Second question, if you were a betting gentleman, uh, what would you think would be the best picture at Oscar time? I think it'll be A Passage to India by David Lean. I think it'll be Amadeus by Milos Forman. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Sarah. I don't think anybody's online, too. Hello? Is, uh, J there is, okay. J <laughs> is this James on line two? No. Oh, I've answered. I'll tell you what. I'm going to put you on hold and uh, let you get picked up and because uh, the other line was uh, holding. Stand by now. We have uh, Ron, who was waiting on line three. What happened is line two, somebody was on there and disappeared, and somebody called in at the last minute. So let's take Ron first, because he was waiting first. Ron, go ahead. Hello there. Hi. I'd like to say that the television program is really outstanding. And, uh, Thank you. Thanks. The reason I think it's outstanding is the almost point-and-counterpoint feeling that I get. And most of the time, it seems to me that I'm offended by critics. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm into, you know, classical music thing, and a couple of weeks ago, or months ago, Luciano Pavarotti did a concert in, in Los Angeles, and uh, somebody got on there and just filleted him. 
uh, at Los Angeles Times, and I felt like I was in the middle of the, the Hatfield and the McCoys, you know, that somebody had something against the man. I mean, they were listening to the greatest tenor uh, in the world, probably, and I just felt like, you know, very little appreciation for what this man is, and uh, the uh, public sits there on, you know, just in pins and needles, thousands of people, you know, and... Uh, then you have some some scathing thing come out, and I wonder, you know, the guy's going to get mad and quit, you know? And it really offends me to hear that. Well, how much did you pay for your ticket? Uh, $75. Was he the world's greatest tenor that night? Uh, well, frankly, uh, I've never heard him sing bad. Okay, did he sing as well as you had heard him sing before? Um, I think so. Let's put it this way. If he hadn't been at the top of his form, do you think he would have refunded part of your money? Well, no, I don't think he would have, but be that as it may... Uh, Isn't it the job of the critic to determine whether or not he gave a $75 performance? Well, <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like generally when you're dealing with somebody... Uh, we're not talking about a movie here. We're talking about a, a man who's getting older, you know? And I don't really feel like... Uh, we take those things into consideration. Yeah, I, you're dealing with a. This is a very uh, good subject uh, because we had a review of a Frank Sinatra concert in Chicago that caused quite a stir. Our um, nightlife critic uh, Larry Card, who's a good critic, I think, um, gave what would be considered a negative review to Sinatra's performance that night, which is Rogers' whole point. You know, he's reviewing him that night. He's not reviewing his career, and there was a big stink because Sinatra has as many fans as Pavarotti. And we got into a whole discussion. All the, the critics got together with an editor, and we had a big discussion, and, you know, what's the role of the critic and all that. And i, I got to tell you that there's no way the critic is going to win the argument uh, when you're talking about the people of legendary status because I know we know all the lines, who's the critic, what songs have you sung, what have you written, and we know all that stuff. I would only ask you to think of the following. Obviously... Let's say the critic is sitting there, and everyone, we know this, everyone has an off night, including Sinatra, including Pavarotti. Now, what if the critic is sitting there, and it is that off night, okay? I mean, you'll agree that there could be an off night, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, what should the critic do? Think about it from the critic's point of view. If he says he has two ways to go, he either calls it straight or he fakes it. If he fakes it and says he's good, or this is one of his best nights, but, you know, it's good, I love him, and it doesn't matter. Let's say he goes that far. Don't you realize that that is the easy way out? Because don't you realize that he will have the reader like him more? He will not be called in by his editor who's gotten calls from, let's say, the neighbor down the street who says, I love Frank Sinatra. How dare you have a guy in your paper knock him? It is easier for the critic to write the positive review. No one ever complains about a critic. You'll never hear him on the Johnny Carson show say, I hate critics when they've just gotten good reviews. So... I only say to you that the critic is obviously taking a risk, and the risk is he's really just doing his job, if he, in that one instance, when he doesn't think a good performance has been given, says so. And rather than pillory the guy who does it, or the woman who does it, I think, I mean, you can ignore him if you wish, that's for sure, but if you're going to take a position on how you feel about that guy doing that job, I would at least recognize that he is doing a slightly courageous thing. It is much easier to say that Pavarotti, you think that Roger and I didn't realize when we knocked Yes Giorgio that there are going to be some Pavarotti fans <laughs> out there who are going to say, you guys are nuts? 
But the movie was awful. I'm not saying he's awful. I'm saying that this movie was awful. Uh, all right. Uh, 320 Talk is the number to call. we got a little business to do, and uh, we'll have a few more minutes and a few more calls for Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Excuse me. We'll be right back. We're back with uh, the Mike Side program. I'm Mike Meenan. Uh, with us, oh, oh, I'm supposed to tell you that there's an injury traffic accident on Highway 111 in front of VIP Motors. They've got one lane closed down there. So if you're traveling on 111 East Palm Canyon Drive in Palm Springs, they may have a little traffic back up down there at the present time. They're going to have one lane closed uh, for uh, 30 minutes, they tell me. Margot is on line two. Good evening. Good evening. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I was just sitting here listening to your program, eating some popcorn. Wondering mm -hmm. which movie do each of you think is the greatest movie of all time? Oh, that's one of my least favorite questions of all time <laughs> because it's a tough one. I mean, is it? Are you asking with the word greatest? This is one that always gives critics trouble. Are you asking by greatest the one that influenced the movies the most, or are you asking about the one that we'd have to take with us if we were on the proverbial desert island? Um, that's why a lot of critics rally around the convenient answer of Citizen Kane, because it sort of falls into both categories. It is a movie that changed the movies. It liberated the American cinema and thereby the world cinema. And second, it's a lot of fun. So it's a convenient answer. I don't think it's going to make anybody you know, thrilled to hear it, but that's my pick. Okay. My favorite movies are The Third Man, Notorious, La Dolce Vita, Singing in the Rain, 2001, Casablanca, Citizen Kane, and uh, those aren't... On a good day, Gone with the Wind. Those aren't ranked, though. No, I'm just, I'm avoiding the question. Well, if I run a desert island, yes, I take along an army training film called How to Build a Boat. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. And a projector, of course. <laughs> Margo, we go now to Todd on line one. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Um, I believe uh, Mr. Siskel touched on what I wanted to ask you about briefly when he talked about his feeling for, about costume dramas. But uh, I would like to uh, go in a little deeper on how they feel about prejudices that certain critics have towards certain types of movies or, for example, violence in movies. I've encountered uh, certain critics in the past who, for instance, say a Clint Eastwood movie or a Charles Bronson movie, could be, uh, well, the reaction would be predictable. I mean, you knew they wouldn't like the movie because going in, they, they, they just don't like violent movies. That's okay with me. I don't object to that. It's Roger speaking. Uh, yes. I, Do you, uh, have you ever felt like disqual that you, like... No, I see, the thing is... I think that your question, although you haven't really phrased it that way, uh, comes around to the idea of why can't you critics be more objective? And I think a lot of people forget that criticism is a totally subjective art form or form of journalism, if you will, and that the idea of the critic is to have prejudices. Uh, it's absolutely required that we like some things and not like other things. And another word for prejudices in this context might be taste. One person may not like to see violence on the screen, may not be attracted to a Clint Eastwood's screen persona. And in that case, he's playing absolutely within the rules by saying so. Now, the one thing that he isn't doing for you, and this gets a little bit away from criticism, and that what you are saying or maybe have the problem with, is that he's not going to be very valuable for you, unless he declares it up front, 
exactly, that, he, exactly. that he has valuable for you to use him as a tool to decide which films you want to see. Exactly, that's that, exactly my point. Right, and and although for you know for a um, there are plenty of critics around, so you would have no trouble uh, finding one who didn't have that exact prejudice on violent films. Um, neither Roger or I happen to, for example, you can watch our show because neither one of us uh, has a prejudice against violence per se in film. Uh, one of uh, the f favorite films that Roger mentioned uh, in his 10 best, Bonnie and Clyde, is an extremely violent film, uh, but it uh, uses uh, violence poetically, I think. Uh, there are other films that are nonstop slaughter. And we have been among the first, if not the first, people to identify that trend uh, in the slice and dice uh, uh, mad slasher movie. Everything depends upon uh, the overall impact of the film. To say that something that you isolate is wrong, I think, is, is a dumb sort of thing to say, well, we shouldn't see any stabbings or we shouldn't see any shootings. Well, let's see who the characters are and what the story is. I think the best American film that's been made in the 17 years that I've been a movie critic was Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, uh -huh. which may also have been the most violent film of that period. Yet at the same time, uh, I was very happy to join with Gene in a program we did attacking the so-called women in danger films, which were essentially just uh, movies exploiting the idea of, of the woman as victim, very unhealthy and sick movies. So that, and yet no subject matter should be off base either. It just depends on the artistic uh, achievement that the director has has arrived at with his material. The one thing I will say is, and the value of our show in terms of as a guide to um, viewing, with the two of us up there, rather than just one critic, and with there being a spontaneous interchange, and you're able to see our faces as we make our points through television, I think if you're looking for a guide, I think our show is built for you, because you will see, we will be there probing any prejudice, legitimate prejudice uh, or opinion that's out there. If, uh, if I sense that Roger doesn't like uh, body double because it's violent, and actually I was the one that didn't care for it, uh, because of some of its cartoonish violence, you know that Roger's going to be right there raising that point because he knows me very well, and he'll spot something like that. So uh, I think uh, in, ter in terms of uh, just to isolate the person, that uh, the critic that has the that kind of opinion, but on, on our show, I think you may find it challenged, and you might find it uh, worthwhile. All right, we're going to take one more call. That's all the time we're going to have, and we have Robert on line three. Uh, three. Robert, this is going to have to be quick. Robert here, Mike. My, my question is, we've just gone through a long campaign of political rhetoric, coming to the conclusion of a tough football season. We're all ready for another Tootsie. Is there anything in the wind? You know, I just saw Tootsie the other day on television. It is a sensational film. I mean, I admire it so much. There's so much more in there than had to be to make it just a terrific film. I, I agree with you. I think it's a sensational picture. And I don't know when we'll see a comedy that good. There's no Tootsie coming. Uh, Tootsie not, 2? Let's hope there's not a Tootsie 2 because I think that Tootsie said it all. And if there is, they won't have Dustin Hoffman because he won't make a sequel. It'll be somebody else and some other kind of idea. I don't, you know, the funny thing about Tootsie is, in all the wonderful movies that come along, uh, there are little miracles every time one happens. There are so many millions of pieces that go into movies, so many pieces of dialogue and so many images and visions and costumes and sets and edits 
I, that it's a miracle when a good film is made at all. That's exactly what I was thinking when I watched, uh, and they, they're doing a soap opera scene. I don't know if you remember from Tootsie. They're doing a soap opera scene, and she is the, the lecherous old guy on the show, uh, the doctor, is going to kiss her, and she hits him, remember, with her clipboard and stalls it. And then at the end of, now that's a very funny bit. At the end of the scene, the guy comes up and says to him, Dorothy, you know, I just wanted to thank you very much. You were terrific in that scene. And he plants a kiss right on Dustin Hoffman. Now, that was an extra laugh that really made that a great film. In other words, it was, they already had one joke on the subject. They went for another one, and it was terrific. Well, it's getting close to our uh, departure time here. Our gentlemen have to get back to the uh, hotel because the dinner for the California Broadcasters Association is coming up. I want to thank them for joining us and uh, all of you for uh, calling in and asking your questions. Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel, a reminder that At the Movies can be seen on KESQ-TV 6.30 p.m. on Saturdays and 4.30 in the afternoon on Sundays. Gentlemen, thank you very much. And it's fun being here. Thank you. I'm sorry for the weather, but you know, that's the way it goes. Thanks, Mike. This is Mike Meenan. Tomorrow night, uh, the Cod Father is going to join me and talk about the virtues of cod liver oil. That's right. That's tomorrow night. Uh, we'll see you then. Just for the record, Roger Ebert's prediction was right. Amadeus took the Best Picture Oscar in 1985. I'm Mike Meenan.